to Acoustic Music Talk, where we explore the art of acoustic music and musicians with your host, Brad Apple. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to Acoustic Music Talk, the podcast. I'm your host, Brad Apple, and we've got an exciting interview in store for you this week. You know, I'm going to wind the clock back a little bit here, back to the year 1985. I was listening to Community Radio out of Little Rock, Arkansas, KABF. They had a bluegrass show that come on uh, a few nights every week. And I heard a band that come on there that just blew me away. And I thought, who are these guys? They are just great. And I especially paid attention to the mandolin player because, you know, I was trying to learn to play mandolin myself at that time. It turns out that that band was the Lonesome River Band, and I was hearing their debut release called I Guess Heartaches Are In Style This Year. They followed it up about a year later with their self-titled Rebel Records debut. It turns out the mandolin player is a fellow named Jeff Midkiff, and Jeff was the uh, original recording mandolin player with the Lonesome River Band. Jeff stayed with the Lonesome River Band their first few years, And then he left and uh, focused on a career as a clarinetist. After that, he began focusing on teaching. Uh, He taught for a while in Florida. And now he's moved back to his hometown of Roanoke, Virginia, where he is currently a music educator for Roanoke City Schools. And it was there in 2017 that Yale gave him their Distinguished Music Educator Award. Now, he didn't forget the mandolin, uh, far from it. In fact, uh, Jeff has been composing mandolin concertos, and he has gotten to perform at Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center, among others. So it was with great pleasure that I got to sit down and finally meet Jeff Midkiff, although through the phone, and have a good conversation with him about his career here recently. So let's get into that now. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I told you, I've been a fan for such a long time. Well, 30-something years, 35, 36 years now. <laughs> well, you're dating me there, Brad. I, I, really, appreciate, I really appreciate you uh, you reaching out, and uh, I look forward to talking to you. Well, like I told you, I first heard you in, uh, around 1985 or 86 with the Lonesome River Band there, the I Guess Heartaches Are In Style This Year record. And I'd like to jump back in time. I know we, we talked about that, having to remember things, but uh, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, how you got started in music, what uh, what got you interested in the mandolin. Did you come from a musical family, or what's your background there? Well, sort of. Um, so I was born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, my, my folks uh, listened to uh, folk music and, and bluegrass music a lot, uh, my mom played a little guitar and sang a little bit, and my older sister a little bit of guitar and sang as well. But uh, everybody loved loved music and, and, and bluegrass. So, you know, it was about seven. I was seven years old when I actually heard a neighbor. I lived on a mountain uh, not too far outside of Roanoke, and had a neighbor who played the mandolin, and he had a mandolin. He was playing, it. and I guess the story goes that I um, I must have said that I thought it was cool or. The 1970 version of that word. <laughs> I'm not sure what I said, but I, I, I showed interest, and he told me that he would give it to me if I'd learn how to play it. Wow. Well, I was seven, and that was 1970, and uh, that was pretty much one quick a conversation that turned out to be the rest of my life. So, yeah, um, yeah Mr. Paul, Sherman Paul, he had this old uh, Sears and Roebuck mandolin, and actually, you know, it comes. I found out later that... <laughs> 
he just wanted a good excuse to buy a new mandolin. But anyway, <laughs> it was good for me because I, I got a mandolin. And I, I really thought it was really just the greatest thing. And uh, I guess my, my, my folks decided that they'd help me, uh, you know, su- support me. And indeed, they really did. Uh, so I took me to the local music store, and there was a, a lady there that played a little mandolin. Um, her husband, I believe, was an Italian and played mandolin, and her name was Mabel Mussolino. And she taught me to learn by note. She taught me how to read treble clap and play folk tunes, just wrote them down, and we started off that way. And she knew that I wanted to learn how to play bluegrass songs because that's what I knew and what I liked. And she did a really good job writing stuff out and teaching me by ear and and really nurturing me to get started for about a year or two. But at that point, we, we both knew that I really wanted to play bluegrass. So it turns out that down the road, there's another music store that I just happened to have two bluegrass mandolin teachers. And I guess I was about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And and I said, well, who should I take? And the guy said, well, uh, the younger one, his name is Dempsey Young. <laughs> and and the other person is Herschel Sizemore. Oh wow! Well, I didn't know who these people were. Dempsey was probably nineteen. At you know he was a, he was probably eighteen or nineteen at the time. Yeah. Um, and that was probably even before the law. I'm not positive, but that very well might be before the Lost and Found started, or if it it was probably about the same time that they were starting. And I've always looked back on and I and I decided, okay, well, I guess since I'm young and he's younger, I'll go ahead and and take lessons with Dempsey. Looking back over it, it's been interesting <laughs> if I'd have had an opportunity to to, to study with uh, Herschel. But uh, anyway, so I took lessons for a couple couple years with Dempsey, and until he said that's enough, you need to go on to do what you know you you know all the tunes. You just need to do what you're going to do. And so I was extremely lucky to be growing up in the 1970s in this area of the country. Um, where, I mean, bluegrass, the, the fiddlers conventions and bluegrass festivals were really starting to take off. Um, in addition to that, there were a lot of other young people who were, you know, my age or not too much older than me that were doing what I was doing. So yeah. I had the luxury of hanging out with people my own age that were as into it as myself. I find now, you know, decades later that my students uh, young students, they don't have that luxury, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, who, there's nobody for them to play with, and, and I'm trying to, you know, encourage them to get all fired up to, to learn songs and stuff like that, but uh, it, anyway, it was a great time to be growing up uh, in this area, and um, so in up there was the Fiddle and Bandit Club, which was a weekly, uh, I mean, a monthly thing where all, all the pickers got together and got on stage and played, and so I was started joining some bands and let's see uh, had a great band uh started off with the third edition and then moved uh, to another band the new grass review and a whole bunch of all we were all really good good friends and these people were so good and we we thrived uh off the music and all encouraged each other we were learning all the the stuff we were hearing on the radio and starting to do our own songs as well but of course, my big motivation is from listening to records uh, at the time, and of course, I wanted to play everything Bill Monroe did. 
yeah. that old uh, the older stuff that he did. I just couldn't get enough of that, and uh, I ruined quite a few records. You know the the LP records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I would play. Um, for hours, my, my parents would have to come get me for dinner because I'd been playing three or four hours and I wasn't going to stop until I figured out how to play that lick. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, I, that's what I did. And I listened to the Monroe Records and, uh, of course, uh, all, all the, the other stuff um, growing up. And, and, of course, the country gentlemen and seldom seen were just getting started and becoming uh, very important and popular in the early 70s. And uh, the early country gentlemen... Uh, with uh, John Duffy and, of course, Dora Lawson. Dora Lawson was a huge influence of mine when I was that young. Right. Uh, and, well, and, and still, I look back to those t- days, uh, the, the right-hand technique and, uh, and the note choices, and, and of course, uh, and John Duffy. And, um, and Jesse McReynolds, that, uh, I remember his, his album, uh, that mandolin uh, workshop album came out, El Combachere and all those tunes, and, um, and all of that stuff. I just... I just ate it up, and I just really worked hard at trying to learn as much and copy as much as I could. And I found that after you do that for a bunch of years, and you start you you assimilate all that information, and you start start with your you figure out what you like in other stuff you want to do, and all of a sudden you start you know be more uh, you start having your own style or at least your own voice with all the the influences that you're listening to. In addition to all this, the the Bluegrass Festival, uh, the the Fiddlers Convention, that was a big part. In these bands that I played in, we used to travel two or three Fiddlers Conventions in a weekend, and we would do this all spring, summer, and uh, fall long throughout the seventies and even into the uh, the early eighties. So um, I can talk. <laughs> I'm just going on and on, but uh, well, you you uh, mentioned Fiddlers Conventions. It, I think that's a uh a common theme of, of folks, you know, that come from your era and mine also played such an important role in the development of a lot of uh, musicians' musicality and everything was going to fit those fiddlers' conventions and making those connections and uh, learning from each other. Who's some of the folks that you made connections with at fiddlers' conventions, uh, maybe off the top of your head? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, the, um, the people that you would see from just... Um, just, just people who were just incredible players that you heard, and it, it, the, they would inspire you to try harder. Uh, play, also, play different instruments. Oh my goodness, I played a lot. Of, uh, learned fiddle and guitar and bass and everything. Uh, but um, uh, you know, I first heard Mark O'Connor at, at some of these, and anytime he would show up, I just couldn't believe how how anybody could do that. Randy Howard, uh, fiddlers yeah. as well, um, and then just just. You know, players from all over the place, and of course, uh, Galax Fiddlers Convention here in in Virginia. That's been going on over fifty. See, I don't know how many years. I went to that. I don't know, twelve years or so. And that being as popular as it is, people from all over the world showed up to there. So, you know, you would see um, people in the regional area that you knew and could count on being there to to inspire you, but. Then again, you have other fiddlers conventions where you knew there were going to be incredible players that were going to were going to come there, and, and of course the the competition aspect of it was that was a, a necessary evil, I guess. But it yeah. it, it was it, it threw a lot of um, you know uh, that the competition thing in there. But the best thing is is when you know people that you would when when you would hear bands 
like literally, I mean, you would. I got an opportunity to hear all of the great bands, Bill Monroe. I mean, there's. I, I can remember uh, many a time listening to Kenny Baker play all that incredible backup to to Bill Monroe and, and the Osborne Brothers back in the back in the seventies. I mean, there's nothing better than that, and I still remember all of that and uh, those those festivals and, and uh, bluegrass festivals and uh, competitions. They really, uh, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people who grew up at that time um, that that talk just like I do about how the how that was inspiring. Yeah, it's interesting. It will be interesting to see even in the future how you mentioned the younger folks today learning. You know, a lot of them's learning from YouTube and stuff, which is yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's just uh, mind blowing how quickly they catch on and learn stuff anymore because they can actually see how it's being done. And, like say back it, in the it days, really, needle it drop. It really is, and um, to, I just marvel at YouTube and all the different technology that you have. It's like, oh my gosh, if we'd only had that back then. But uh, no, yeah. and, and, and I'm, I have a lot of optimism now. Nowadays, um, there are uh, younger people start coming around. I think that it's just cyclic. I think that it's it's uh, a lot more younger players are just recently starting to really get into it and do great things. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned joining some early bands there. Um, of course, of interest to me a, a lot because it's where I first heard you was the Lonesome River Band. Um, right. When did that? Uh, how how did that come about? And when did that come about? Did you uh, have connections with Tim Austin and some of those guys through festivals or conventions? Yeah. Well, we, uh, Tim lived in Fair in Virginia, which is not far away from Roanoke, and uh, my good buddy, uh, Jerry McMillan, uh, we were all friends, and this is early 80s, very early 80s, and uh, I just started, uh, by the way, uh, I also graduated high school and went into college at Virginia Tech. I'm a clarinetist as well, so I was starting off on a clarinet yeah. career uh, and music teaching career. But at the same time, I was hanging out with some really good players. And so I got a call to play with the McPeak Brothers. Uh, and I just thought that that was a great idea. Yeah. Um, so I was playing with the McPeak Brothers just about the same time that Tim Austin and Jerry McMillan were starting off wanting to start up uh, the Lonesome River Band. Now, this is even pre before the name, they figured out what the name was. Um, and, and I, and I said, well, I'm sort of playing with the McPeak brothers and, um, another friend of, of ours, uh, Steve Thomas. Um, you know, it, it turned out that Steve just decided, you know, he was going to, uh, start the Lonesome River band with, with Jerry and Tim. So Steve started off playing mandolin and fiddle for the, the original Lonesome River band. And I, for a little less than a year, played with the McPeak brothers. And, um, Steve left, decided that he was going to leave. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, maybe six months or, or a year or so. And, and I'd only, at that point, I'd only played one or two gigs with the McPeak brothers. Good, I mean, it was, it was really good and recorded uh, that Making Tracks album on uh, Rebel Records with them, uh, which, was, which was a lot of fun doing that. But we weren't really playing, so when Steve left, Jerry and Tim, you know, we talked again, and I said, well, let's just go on and call this a day. And so I, I officially joined the Lonesome River Band and went on with them. Now, so 
I'm not necessarily the original uh, mandolin player with the LRB, but uh, Steve has that. But he wasn't long uh, until he moved on. And so when I took over, I was probably playing mandolin with the Lonesome River Band for the first those those about five years or so uh, in the early early eighties, uh, maybe oh eighty two three on up to eighty six or seven and recorded two records. Uh, I guess Heartaches Are in Style this year was the first one, and the second one was the that Rebel record. Yeah, and that was self-titled, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the one that starts off with Hello. Yeah, yeah. I'm real proud of both. I'm, I'm very proud of all that music that we made in those five years. I had a... Uh, uh, it was very lucky. We, we all... We were good buddies, and we had all uh we were real passionate about the music and uh it was excellent just excellent education as well as uh fun learning and uh new stuff and creating new stuff uh with the lonesome river man that was great and did a lot of traveling with them as well right so were you were you guys traveling a lot mostly on weekends or did you do weekday yes because i was still well during the summers we'd go off a weekend or two at a time um, our mode of tri- transportation back in that day was a, a Dodge van that Tim had that we lovingly called Surge. Um, and then I think there was a, an old small Winnebago that I remember very, uh, not so fondly did, that, uh, had a, uh, the furnace and it didn't work very well. If I, if I remember correctly, they bought the bus, the first bus about a week or two after I left the band. Okay. <laughs> So I did a lot of I went through a lot of grunt years. Uh, yeah, doing a, a lot of playing uh, where you're sleeping in the Winnebago out in the, the parking lot of the near the gig where you're going to play the next day. So yeah, did Lonesome River Band rehearse a lot in those days? Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes. I mean, we did. I mean, we were always trying to work up new material. And we were all feeding off of each other. And, I'm, and I must say that Tim Olson had an incredibly inspiring work ethic. Tim um, understood. I mean, Tim was, he was much older for his years than I, I was, I confess. I was, a, you know, I was in my early 20s or whatever. Or, no, just 20, barely 20. Looking back on it, I, uh, I'm really glad for the direction and, and education that I got in that band. A lot and due to part in the, the Tim's excellent work ethic and uh, business sense. And um, so, I mean, we we uh, musically as well as business side of things, um, we we tried to do the best we could. Uh, a lot of it, it was trial by fire and sort of hit or miss, but uh, uh, we we did rehearse a, a, a pretty good amount. What was it like playing with uh, Tim's rhythm? He's got one of the best rhythm guitar licks I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you know, I I wouldn't say we I, we took it for granted, but I just thought that that's the way you play. You know, you're supposed to play the guitar. Yeah, and uh, indeed it is. Tim's uh, rhythm was second to none, and uh, I know that we all, you know, it's all about the rhythm and the right hand. And of course, Tim was a big fan of Dell and. Uh, as we all were, and of course David Parmley, uh, David Parmley's rhythm guitar playing, and yep. of course Tony Rice was a huge influence to all of us back in the, back in that day. Um, but Tim, it was all about the timing, and he it, indeed uh, was right, and we all worked hard at making sure that we 
the first and foremost to nail down the timing. And but yeah, it was a lot of fun playing chop chop into that that uh, that guitar playing for sure. Yeah, I bet. Well, what was it like, um, buffs like me that's followed the Lonesome River Band since its inception, pretty much, and the first recordings will probably like stuff like this. But uh, wasn't your first record there? The I guess Heartaches are in style this year. Was that recorded at River Track Studio? Is that right? All right, so we, we went through a, a few banjo players, two two main banjo players. Billy Wheeler was the first main banjo player, followed by Randy Driscoll. Now, the first record that we did, uh, Heartaches record, that was at, at uh, Billy Wheeler's studio. Okay. And off the top, I uh, can't remember exactly what it is right now. I can get that for you, but... Uh, uh, I don't think it's what you said. It might be. You might know better than I am, but uh, it's actually I've got the vinyl downstairs. Um, but that was Billy's studio that we did that. Okay. Yeah, I probably. This, actually, I think yeah. I am thinking of another record. Of course, I'm guessing that was all analog back at that time. Definitely analog, and I was so upset because you know this is pre-CD, and um, both of those records, I don't think either one of them, even the McPeak Brothers uh, making tracks record, I don't think any of them made it to CD and. <laughs> I yeah. think there are there's some tracks that are now on CD, but uh, but not as the original uh, reproduction or whatever. So the the uh, the Rebel record was done here at uh, old. It was done here at a, at a studio here in Roanoke. Also, it eludes me, but yeah, great great studios to work in. Um, were you still with the Lonesome River Band then when Tim started building his own studio? Yes and no. I think so, um, but this was well, well before Dubuche Records. I think. Yeah. Um, I I stayed with the band until eighty six, eighty seven. I left in fall of eighty seven to go to Northern Illinois University to get a master's degree, master's degree in clarinet performance. So I mean, uh, it was as always tugging at my my life, musical life, either playing uh, mandolin. With with bluegrass and traveling, playing bluegrass, or putting on my tuxedo and studying and trying to get as good as I could on on, on the clarinet, and so that was, you know, it was hard and uh, you know you have to try to make decisions about your future and everything, and so I, I um, <laughs> it's complicated, you know, life's complicated. So oh, yeah. I, I chose at that point to to pull back on the bluegrass traveling thing and study clarinet. So I went off to grad school studying clarinet at about, and, and we, and uh, we had, um, playing with the lunch River band. We had, uh, that last year or so I let the band know and I just played fiddle and we had other mandolin players go on tour with us to sort of try out. And you'd have to talk to, to Tim or to Jerry to get, a little bit better the names of those people. Um, I just know that you know uh, it's you. You never know what's going to happen. I know that Adam Steffi would play. Uh, ultimately, would you know took over, and then then after him, Dan Tabinsky. Right. And you know what all of that's about. So uh, there are times where I think, wow, well, maybe I should have hung in there just a little <laughs> bit more. But um, I'm proud to have been in that. You know, in the band that. Uh, flourishes so well and, and even today uh, Sammy and crew they have been playing nothing but incredible music for the last how many years 30 years amazing oh yeah absolutely um, I think, like I said uh, life's, life's complicated so I after playing a lot of clarinet I um, 
moved to Florida, and I started teaching uh, in public schools, orchestra director. Um, and then after a couple of years in Naples, Florida, I moved to Northern Virginia, uh, teaching in Fairfax County. Now, during this whole time, I didn't play any man. None. And we're talking, I don't know, 10 years. I mean, it was a long time. I did not play much mandolin at all. And it's only recently that I would confess that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but like I said, life's complicated. Absolutely. Uh, so I didn't play any mandolin, at, not too much at all. I was conducting youth orchestras, and I was teaching public schools, and I was playing clarinet. And then I was playing clarinet. I, I know I had a, a job uh, at where I actually got a chance to play in Carnegie Hall with a full orchestra and with standing innovation. It was amazing. And, and I decided, you know, I want to stop teaching and I'm going to move to Chicago uh, and play clarinet more seriously. So I did that. So about nine, 1995 or so, I moved to Chicago. And uh, indeed, I, was play, I, I got a lot of work playing clarinet. And about this uh, time, I had, you know, uh, when I was in, in Illinois earlier, I had to get my master's degree back in the late 80s, I played bluegrass with a bluegrass express. Um, and, uh, and and those guys, I, I rekindled uh, uh, some bluegrass, started picking with those guys again, and Gary and Greg Underwood uh, and the bluegrass express. So I started playing mandolin again <laughs> uh, in the, in the, around 1995. And then a year or so later, I got a call from uh, these these young ladies, Shankman twins. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if, if you, you've heard of, heard of them, but in uh-huh. the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, they were doing real well on, the, on the, the circuit, and they wanted to know if I would play mandolin with them. Um, and I lived literally a mile from O'Hare Airport in Chicago. So I, they came to visit, and they were from California, and they came to visit, and we had a jam session. They said, yeah, would you please play with us? And, you know, uh, well, you just we'll play all over the world, and uh, you just fly there and get your hotel room and rental car. And, and so literally for the next five years, I played mandolin with the Shankman Twins Band, and I got to see a lot of the world, uh, this country, uh, Canada and the U.K. and Europe. Um, but probably most importantly, I met, this guitar player, his name is Curtis Jones from Georgia. Yeah. And Curtis, Curtis and I uh, just really hit it off. And, you know, Curtis is one of the most uh, gifted musicians I know. And his guitar playing uh, was an inspiration every time I heard any note that he played. So we just played together all the time and fed off each, each other. And uh, he inspired me to uh, actually start writing some, some music and actually uh, record my first solo CD, which I did, and that came out in 2002 or 2003. Uh, it's called Partners in Time. Very proud of that. Uh, um, Curtis is playing guitar on that, and I'm playing mandolin. So it was all instrumentals. I wrote half the tunes and a couple of uh, uh, Monroe tunes and uh, Gershwin, Bill, uh, George Gershwin tunes and, uh, and some uh, traditional tunes as well. So that was uh, an exciting time as well. Uh, doing doing that yes sir i've got um, that cd actually yep. and uh one of them on there that i was going to tell you blows my mind hearing you play it and i think you wrote it i don't have the credit in front of me but uh etheria etheria yes yeah did you write that one i i, I did uh thank you um, yeah that, that blows my mind I, to hear you play that <laughs> well i tell you what i don't play as much as i you have to be careful what you write because you know you got to play it and so if yeah. it's if it's uh <laughs> 
<laughs> if it's demanding, you got to be ready to play it. So, uh, but um, actually, I did write that. I really like the solo violin sonatas of Johann Sebastian Bach, mm-hmm. and I was listening to an Isaac Perlman recording of the you know the very famous uh, E major partita. And and I just thought, well, I should write something uh, a solo mandolin, a solo mandolin perpetual motion sixteenth note type thing. Uh, I should write something. Uh, not copying that, but just, you know, something, uh, in E, e minor, just something with the idea. And, and so that's what I got, and I just called it Etheria. Um, wow. and, and that was also my name of the publishing company that I used to publish the, the song, uh, uh, the pieces that I, that I've written. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's an awesome um, record. I, I encourage anybody out there listening to check that out. Uh, and, as a side note, also, you recorded that at, at Tim's Dubuche studio, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Um, yeah. I, I did indeed. And I, Tim and his studio and everybody there uh, did such a great job. And uh, I was very lucky to be able to, to use that. And, of course, Tim didn't get production credit on it, but he definitely, anytime he, he, he's around, uh, I, I listen to everything he said and uh, took his advice often. Yeah, the sound quality is just pristine on there, just, you know, like all of his stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got that right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So um, have you, yeah. did you just start writing around that time? You said uh, Curtis Jones that's, kind of inspired yeah, you to... That's, yeah, that's, that's about the size of it. I mean, when I was younger, I did write, a, a, you know, some quasi-fiddle tunes and stuff like that, but it wasn't until that time when playing with Curtis and the Shangman Twins that I really started to write more intricate pieces and in the back of my mind you know you gotta remember that i've I've been conducting orchestras youth orchestras and playing clarinet in professional orchestras a lot and the the classical repertoire it's important to me i mean it's it's another side it's another side of another podcast uh and so in in the back of my mind all these years starting about that time it's like you know i really bet i could write a piece for mandolin and orchestra. And that just sort of stewed over the next uh, 10 years or so. And I, eventually I left the Shankman Twins and Pete Kipton playing in, in clarinet in Chicago and in the Chicago area. And eventually I moved back to Roanoke and started teaching here at, at the in Roanoke City Public Schools. I uh, got a really good job with great, great students and support. Uh, and I, that, that's, you know, that's my day job now. And, uh, and it's actually, I've been composing works for mandolin and orchestra the last 10 years or so. I was commissioned, um, to write a mandolin concerto by David Wiley, music director of the Roanoke Symphony here. Uh, I knew I could do it. I've, I've written a piece for mandolin and concert band before I left Chicago. I got a, a, a little bit of uh, experience doing that before I left Chicago. And I told the maestro, I bet I could really write something that would uh, be worthy and people would like, what symphony audiences would like. Well, that was in 2010, and we premiered it in 2011. It was a 20-minute concerto in three movements. I'm very proud of it. It turns out that it, 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 it was well-received, and I've performed it now over the last eight or ten years nearly 20 times uh, across the country. For example, I've played it uh, with the Rochester Philharmonic, Jacksonville Philharmonic, the Boulder Philharmonic, and 
I'm extraordinarily proud to say that I performed the, that concerto with the Boulder Philharmonic at the Kennedy Center as part of their performance uh, at the Shift Festival at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Yeah. yeah. In addition, I've written a concerto for mandolin and violin and orchestra, and also quintets for mandolin and string quartet, and, and uh, for the Carpe Diem String Quartet. This is phenomenal musicians. Uh, they commissioned me to write a, a quintet for mandolin and string quartet, and we recorded my latest record, uh, CD, uh, is actually with the Carpe Diem String Quartet, quintet, mandolin quintet number one, which is an arrangement of the mandolin concerto. And then the second mandolin quintet, uh, I entitled Gypsy, it has uh, uh, gypsy influences. I'm very proud of, uh, of that as, as well. The uh, Carpe Diem String Quartet asked me to perform that piece with them at Carnegie Hall in New York City a couple of years ago. So, yeah, um, yeah, I must confess that I, I feel that I've had a very uh, lucky, a very uh, 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 <laughs> wide-ranging <laughs> musical life so far, and I couldn't be happier uh, at all the things I've done. Yeah. I must say that sometimes I really wish that I didn't do one thing and do it better, you know, so many irons in the fire. If you do one thing, others suffer. Uh, but I must confess, at the end of the day, uh, um, I'm feel extremely fortunate to be able to say that I know what it feels like to play uh, the principal clarinet part to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in a performance, uh, and bass clarinet on Mahler's Symphony Number no. Six, and also understand what it is—the incredible uh, feel of a uh, Del McCurry G-Run, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or, or being able to play, say that I played bluegrass uh, at the Lowe's Casino in Monte Carlo for Prince Rainier back in the 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, so, uh, yeah, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, you've had a really diverse musical uh, <laughs> experience through, through life there. <laughs> and that. Uh, yeah, it's complicated, but I can't complain a bit. Yeah, and uh, of course you mentioned luck, but I wouldn't say that your talent has the most to do with it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I appreciate. It. I, I don't. I, I shouldn't say luck because you know it, it is hard work, and uh, and I tell my students this all the time. It's art and science. Yeah. You know, you can be passionate and love what you do, and and that's great. But if you're if it if you don't execute it well. Uh, you know, it's not your all your feelings and what you love is not going to make it to the listener. So, sure, um, I must confess, I put in a lot of time. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's that's evident. I was going to ask you too. I saw on your website uh, it said uh, that you were given the Distinguished Music Educator Award by Yale in 2017. Yes, yeah. I. It, 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 edu music education is very important to me. I'm, uh, I, this is what my 13th year in the Roanoke City Public Schools, uh, and um, I, like I said, it's uh, an incredibly uh, teaching fine arts in this district here. We've, uh, we're all very lucky. There, it has been supported so well by the administration, and the uh, the programs are, are strong. And so, I've been fortunate to be able to do a, a lot of teaching and partnerships with other teachers and uh, Save the Music Foundation through the VH1 company. Uh, and, of course, uh, they 
I was, they were kind enough to put me up for the the Yale um, Music Educator Award, um, where I think ten uh, music educators in the country got selected for that. And so, um, yeah, that was uh, another highlight. Uh, this time in the teaching uh, aspect of, of music. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell us some, Jeff, about your instruments. Uh, what kind of mandolins you yeah. play? I noticed, I, I think I read one, uh, the kind of brownish colored mandolin. Is that an Arthur Connor built it, mandolin? Ind- in- indeed it is. So yeah. I started off, as I said, with that Sears Roebuck mandolin. And not too long after that, I got an A40, Gibson A40. Uh-huh. Um, and then maybe one or two others in between. But I said uh, I was at Gaylock Fiddler's Convention back in 1974. I was 11 years old, and I met, met uh, Arthur Connor. Arthur Connor lived, he just passed away not too long ago, uh, uh, and uh, Arthur uh, made fiddles and mandolins. He made mostly fiddles, but he did make four or five or mandolins or so. And he had this mandolin at the at Gaylock Fiddler's Convention. I was there. And it was six months old, and it still had that smell to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I could never forget it. And and my dad, my mom and dad supported me so much, uh, and he he paid the $500, and I had myself a brand-new, uh, shiny uh, Arthur Connor mandolin. Yeah. Um, it's a unique, unique mandolin. I still have it. Um, it's you know, got a gargoyle card on the top of it, and... Uh, Curly maple back is just breathtaking, and and it's very even in tone. And, and and I played that mandolin for almost forty years. Well, actually, probably more than forty years. Yeah. So it is. Yeah, it uh, is an extension of my <laughs> body uh, for a long time. And uh, boy, how lucky I was to have that instrument. Um, in addition, uh, in two thousand and four, I was at. Uh, the IBMA, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Owensboro or Louisville, but I was really lucky. I uh, was there, and I was hanging out and jamming with Steve Gilchrist, Aubrey Haney, Tony Williams, and some other incredible players. Um, Mitch Simpson, there you go. And, of course, these guys, they had Moores and Gilchrist. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, you know, I'm proud of my Connor, but you know, uh, the, anyway, I, I I met Steve there for the first time, Steve Gilchrist, and and just hit it off. What a great guy! And I told, yeah. you know, of course, I knew all about Steve's instruments, and uh, I told Steve uh, that I I was I would do anything to have a one of his mandolins. And this was in 2004. And um, at that point, I, if I would, if I understand correctly, he. You know, the, the mandolins, not only were they expensive, very expensive, but there was a five-year waiting list, right? Yeah. And he told me that he would make one for me. And and I was very excited at that thought, but uh, <laughs> at the time, yeah. you know, I wasn't able to part with that kind of money. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we had a nice time, and so I, you know, I made that connection with Steve, and that was in 2004, all right? So fast forward to 2014, okay. I had already composed my mandolin concerto, and I was starting to play it uh, with orchestras throughout the country. And I was saving that money. Uh, I was making a little bit of money, and I was saving it. 
And I finally started to get a, a little bit of money together, and I thought, you know, my condo's not going to last forever, and I've always wanted a Gilchrist mandolin. Well, lo and behold, the day that I started thinking about getting a Gilchrist mandolin, I went to Tony Williamson's uh, website, the Mandolin Central, and that uh, and that was the first day that he had this ma- a Gilchrist mandolin. He had just put up uh, Tom Rosen uh, um, of the uh, Lori Lewis Band had um, just given that to Tony to have Tony try to sell it. Uh, uh, Tom, I had uh, he was trying to get money enough money because uh, he had uh, a lore that he was in a position where he could buy. So that I think that's what Tony tells me. And um, so I immediately called Tony. This was like right before Thanksgiving 2014. And I say, Tony, uh, can I come down there and see this mandolin? And he said, yeah, so the day after Thanksgiving, 2014, I go down to the Mandolin Central, and I, and I play this mandolin. And it turns out that this Gilchrist mandolin, Steve made in 2004. Oh, wow. Basically, it, was, it was made the year that I met Steve, and I told Steve that I wanted one of his mandolins. So anyway, I, I don't know. I, to me, I think that's an interesting, you know, uh, intriguing story that yeah. you know I, I said I spoke to Steve about wanting a mandolin from him in 2004, and then fast forward 10 years later, and uh, anyway, uh, I I told Tony that I wanted the mandolin. I took it home, played it for two days, and I sent. Uh, I went on and paid paid Tony uh, for it, and I've been playing that ever since. And uh, you know, a Steve Gilchrist mandolin is something to behold. And I think that the yeah. one I'm playing is just as good as any I've ever heard. So yeah. those are my instruments that I've been playing over my lifetime. Uh, Arthur Connor, uh, mandolin for over 40 years, and then uh, Gilcrest, uh, 2004 F mandolin since 2014. Wow, that is awesome. I, I, I've heard your Gilcrest on uh, some YouTube videos, and it does sound incredible. Yeah, it's amazing the depth of the the tone and the clarity and the volume. It just really is. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's yeah. good. All Steve's instruments are good. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, um, kind of getting into uh, a personal question, what kind of hobbies do you have? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I love hiking. uh love cooking. like uh, Good food, good wine, traveling. I used to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used to love to travel. So I'm not doing much traveling anymore. Uh, music. I mean, I could spend all my time listening to music that I want to listen to, uh, yeah. be it bluegrass, jazz, or classical. I love reading scores and listening to music, uh, but uh, hobbies. Hmm. Music takes up a big chunk of all that. Yeah. <laughs> but I love hiking and outdoors. Yeah. Um, as well as, as, as good food and wine. What uh, What's coming next for Jeff Midkiff? You got any future plans? Any Any big uh, big things on the horizons? Any uh, new recordings or uh, new compositions well, thank, you're working on? Yeah. Th- thanks for asking. Uh, that's the question I ask myself. The same thing. It's a, we're into this pandemic a year now. 
Yep. And I must confess that I'm planning on recovering from the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been all-encompassed, all, basically uh, teaching and trying to figure out how to teach in the public schools has taken up most of the oxygen uh, for a long time. And I am poised <laughs> to get back in to composing. I really am ready to write another piece for orchestra. I am playing a little bit of bluegrass. I'm very excited about that um, with some, like I said, 109 here, some some buddies. And actually, Jerry McMillan's in the band as well. Oh, um, really? And, okay. Um, Do you guys have a certain, website? What's that? Do you guys have a website? No, um, <laughs> I think Chris Chris is working on the Facebook page. Okay. But uh, Ashley Prim as well as Jeremy Millen and Kurt, uh, Chris Burton, Exit 109. We're doing some stuff. Hopefully we'll be playing Floyd, Floyd Fest in August. We'll see uh, how things turn out. But we're playing a little bit. Uh, and I must confess, ever since uh, leaving Chicago, I've not really played a lot of bluegrass outside of teaching, uh, trying to write music and, and, and perform music with mandolin and orchestra. Has, has taken up a lot of my time. Yeah. So right now I'm probably going to steer, still try to uh, compose more for orchestra, and I'd like to perform my concerto uh, and my quintet more. So that is uh, what I hope to be doing, uh, but I definitely do not want to stop playing bluegrass. I want to make sure that I still am able to, to play that, and so it's good to have that opportunity as well. Yeah, well, we'll look forward to hearing some of the, what Exit 109 has coming up, as well as yeah. uh, your personal uh, ventures there on the mandolin and composing. Um, could you tell folks where they can keep up with you on the web and maybe uh, Facebook or other platforms? Yes, yes, Brad, thank you. So my I have a website. It, it is not as current as, as it could be, but uh, jeffmitkiff.com. I have a website, and uh, the new things that are happening there will will you will be on there, as well as there's lots of information about uh, recordings and past concerts and, and things on the website. I also have um, Jeff Midkiff Music uh, on Facebook, that uh, as well as friend me at, uh, at Jeff Midkiff, and uh, on Facebook I'm I'm on there as well, and um, and there's a lot of information there. All right. Well, Jeff, we want to thank you so much for being on the show today and giving us insights into your music career. And uh, I want to thank you personally, I'm sure as well as on behalf of a lot of listeners to, for the great music you've given us through the years and uh, are continuing to give us. So we look forward to uh, the future and uh, keeping up with you. Well, Brad, it was an honor and a pleasure. It was great talking to you, and I, I appreciate all you're doing. And uh, keep keep up the good work. And uh, um, until next time, I, I thank you again for reaching out. Yeah, well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much, folks, for listening to this edition of Acoustic Music Talk, the podcast. We invite you back next time when we'll be interviewing another artist who has contributed to the great world of acoustic music. And I would like to remind you, you can support Acoustic Music Talk, this podcast. You can do so by going to our website, AcousticMusicTalk.net, and there you will see a tab where you can support the show. Any support you can give us would be much appreciated. As you know, this takes a lot of time to do, and also there's equipment costs, website costs, and all those things that are to be considered. So any support you could give us would be much appreciated. 
Also, you can follow us on Facebook under Acoustic Music Talk. Until next time, I'm your host, Brad Apple. Be safe out there, and we'll see you back here. Thank you for listening to Acoustic Music Talk. Join us again next week for another episode as we continue to explore the world of acoustic music.